So really glad you're here. I think uh, I've, I've been just kind of jabbering, but we're going to officially start right now. I want to say welcome to you. Um, I'm um, Michael Smith, and I'm glad we have a relatively small venue because we're uh, hopefully be able to do a little bit of sharing along the way. Um, I, my first thought when I saw that the time was 8 o'clock, I thought, oh, no. But there are some people undoubtedly, like Tom here, who wake up at 4.30 every morning singing, this is the day the Lord has made, and just and sort of the spirit like uh, Terry Gilmetz, who said, every morning is a beautiful morning. But not everybody sees the same way. Our friend Joanna says, I have a carpe diem mug. Truthfully, at 6 in the morning, words do not make me want to seize the day. They make me want to slap a dead poet. (laughs) (laughs) And some days that's kind of my spirit. And then uh, Rita said, I don't think jogging is healthy, especially morning jogging. Morning joggers knew how tempting they looked to morning motorists. (laughs) So for whatever reason, I'm really glad to be here in this space with you. And I really don't pretend even to be an expert on this topic, but I've been wrestling with it for a long, long time and continue to find it one of the most challenging and also exhilarating, promising things to engage in. And that is trying to to move toward better understanding of the realities of people whose worlds are so different than our own. Now, this topic, you may have wondered about why do we start off with an obnoxious question like that. Well, it goes back to when I first arrived in Ethiopia. And and I'll confess, I started off, I was expecting to be a pastor, an ordinary person, in an American church, and I was for almost two years and got recruited um, and have, have never really turned back. My calling has been in areas of, of cross-cultural ministry, but I landed in Ethiopia um, in a world that was so different from the world I grew up in, in the Atlanta area. Um, a beautiful world, complex and full of all sorts of exhilarating challenges, like language. Now, the, this line is how Angelina Jolie's name is spelled in Amharic. So you can imagine the intimidation I felt the first time I saw the alphabet, all 231 characters of it. Now, how, how many of you are already familiar with Amharic? The, Vaguely, okay. You know, Amharic is a Semitic language in the same language family with um, Hebrew and Arabic. And each of them has its own completely distinctive script. So the first thing was getting over the intimidation factor. One of the beautiful things to watch is little Ethiopian children learning this, they call it the Fidel, their alphabet. And they will have an instructor who is often an older child who will start at the top of the chart, pronounce each character across, and then um, the the children will will imitate the sound right afterwards. So let's try that with a few of these sounds that are fairly familiar. This row right here, can you guess what that sound is? Okay, it's a T sound, but as is the case in a lot of places in the world, rather than saying T, it's a, your tongue is right against the back of your teeth. It's ta, ta, okay? So, all right, now you children, I want you to uh, imitate the sound as I point, uh, right after I've said it, okay? Ta, tu, ti, ta, te, te, to. Great, you're terrific. Now, um, and one of the beauties of this is that the vowel sequence for each consonant is the same. And it is a phonetically consistent language. Unlike English, 
where you've got to learn the rules about I before E except after C, sounding like A is in neighbor and way, that kind of junk. You don't have to mess with that here in the Amharic. So, okay, you got the T down. There is another T sound that I was not as familiar with, and it's this one that looks a little bit like an M, except it's an explosive T. So follow me on this one as well. Ta, tu, ti, ta, te, tu, to. Great. All right, and here's another one for an easy example. This one is a K sound across the bottom. Ka, ku, ki, ka, ke, ku, ko. There's another K sound right up here, and it is also an explosive sound. Ka. Okay, so follow me. Ka, ku, ki, ka, ke, ku, ko. You guys are great. I think you can handle it. It really is. It's, a, it's just a really fun language. It is grammatically very complex. So back to the title on the, the opening slide. I had uh, spent time learning Amharic and was getting fairly good and quite confident with myself. And so my very first sermon happened to talk about Jesus being baptized. To be baptized, there's just four simple consonants. And it's tatamaka. Easy enough. Well, I had a minor slip. I used all, all four of those same consonants, but I, in unintentionally, I messed up the sequence of them. And so Jesus took amata, which means he had diarrhea. And so it was quite an embarrassing experience there. Um, and it was not my first and certainly not my last mess up in trying to communicate. On the way to language school, even before my sermon attempt, um, we were just a few days in and walking along the road. There were little children who would come out and they would say, Hi, Ferengi, Ferengi, which is an affectionate word for foreigner. And then one morning I heard them saying, Gursha, Gursha, Gursha. I didn't know what Gursha was. But the closest word that I could think of was Wusha. And so when, and, and I didn't, my ears didn't pick up the difference that they were not saying wusha. <clears throat> so I responded to them, wusha, wusha. And it happens that they were asking me for a gursha, a, a, a gift of some candy or something, and I was calling them a dog. So, <clears throat> again, you know, not really, really good in terms of building relationships in a different cultural setting. I wonder, how many of you have done uh, cross-cultural trips, either short-term or long-term already? Any of you ever had any, any, any really embarrassing or funny communication experiences you mind sharing, somebody? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. And I wanted to say, I'm really embarrassed. And I couldn't remember the word for embarrassed, but something like the only word that came to mind was embarrassado, which means pregnant. Oh, so instead of saying, and I'll repeat a little bit just for the, for the recording. So instead of saying that you were embarrassed, you said, I'm pregnant, which is a little tough for most men to experience. Okay, good. All right, go ahead. Yes. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> the red, oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay, any, any other examples somebody want to share? I'll be brave. Okay, go ahead, be brave, be brave. Uh, I was uh, living in Honduras, uh-huh. teaching an English class, and a pastor kept giving me gifts, and so, you know, I'm um, encouraging you to take this in my own hands, but I told him, I can't receive your, your gifts. I'm not willing to have sex with you. <laughs> <laughs> and when I was 
Yes, yes. Because yes. we can't have a sexual relationship. relationship. <laughs> and I've never seen a pastor quite so embarrassed either. So. Yes, yes. Oh, my goodness. So now I go through my pastor brother's stuff. Right. Well, I mean, just these few examples from mine and yours illustrate how crucial our communication is. And the... What we have all learned, and even those of you who haven't yet done inter, international or intercultural uh, trips, is that, that language is a lot more than just words. Language is far deeper than that. It really is. The language is a window into a world. It's, it's, it is the medium within which we connect, and it is a reflection of reality. I can remember uh, after I was in Ethiopia, got kicked out of there because of the Marxist revolution and spent seven years in central Java, Indonesia. And I can remember one of the first times when I was in Java, I lived in a village about 4,000 feet up on the slopes of a 10,000-foot active volcano in a village that was almost entirely Muslim, and I remember the first time I was aware that I was, as I was sitting cross-legged on one of the bamboo ambens or little uh, platforms with, with a bunch of guys, that for the first time I could hear their chit-chat when they were speaking to each other when they were not speaking to me in special baby Javanese. And, so, and, and it was just a thrill to realize that I had the privilege to have that glimpse into their world. And so our language and culture learning is so really important. And, and as we were saying, you know, the, the people in other languages, in other parts of the world, don't just translate our words and thoughts into their words. It's just not that way. One, one great example is John 3.16. All of you have memorized that, right? Let's say it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That ain't the way it goes in this one. The word God starts our English version. God doesn't show up till the second line in this one. So in, in Amharic, it goes something like this. Those who believe in him, all of them, eternal life in order that there be to them, NG is just kind of a throw-in connector word, um, in order that they not be lost, God, his one and only Son, up to the point of giving alamun indihuwadwalina, the world that much he loved. So, I mean, you can just see the, the amazing complexity of the process. So what that means is that learning to speak in another language, as, as you've experienced, requires that in time you learn to think differently. Have some of you had the experience of realizing that you had dreamed in another language? And that's, that's an exciting mile point. It really is. Because you're beginning to, to slide into that worldview. Language, as, I, as we were saying, really helps to show how people understand their world. Here's a, a simple example shared by some friends of mine who've worked among the Maasai people in Kenya. Okay, how, what categories would you use to organize these words? What categories do they fit into? 
supernatural? Plants, animal. animal. Living, non-living. Living, non what else are you seeing? Okay, well, we, we have categories that tend to come naturally to us. To the, to the people in the Maasai area, it, it's a bit different. A man, whale, and lion are things that rule over. Um, you're not going to like this next one, some of you. A woman and a cow are things that produce. And, I mean, the idea is that the cow will produce a bride price or something like that. There's no easy way to get through that one. Um, a deer, dog, and bush are things that are not owned by anybody but are used by everybody. And then the last category, germs, virus, demon, God, and angel are things you can't see that can kill you. So <laughs> I, I love the way that, and having spent some time in the, in the Maasai area and other parts of the world, you can understand how that really makes sense. And so their use of those words express a different sense of, of what life is, of how the world is. I realized somewhere along the way, I remember as a, I think I was a college student, we went on a, Mex a trip to Mexico. I had done a couple of years of Spanish in high school, and, and I even attempted to do a little sermon in Spanish. And so when I did that, um, my, my understanding was that the language was really important so that I would have something to say, to be able to say something. Eventually, along the way, I realized that when we don't understand the local language, our biggest disadvantage is not what we can't say, but what we cannot hear, because we're blocked from the opportunity of understanding. And, you know, hearing and seeing are so much connected. We see what we, what we know. We tend not to see what we don't know. And our hearing and seeing are so much connected. Um, my, my language learning experience was enhanced. I had been, I mean, I had done the traditional language stuff. High school did Spanish and Latin. And then in undergraduate and seminary had done Greek and Hebrew. And I kind of enjoyed the language stuff. But in Ethiopia used a fairly traditional language school approach where we learned grammar rules and did vocabulary memorization and so on. But then after we had to leave Ethiopia, before I went to Indonesia, took a two-week language learning methodology course that I'm going to say a little more about in a few minutes and uh, taught by Dr. Tom and Betty Sue Brewster. And they were the ones who first introduced the concept of monolingual myopia. Monolingual myopia is a disease of the tongue that affects the eyes. Now think about that for a minute and you'll get it. <laughs> a disease of the tongue that affects the eyes because when we are monolingual, our worlds are so limited and our ability to see the world around us is quite limited. Now, all of this is so important because of a gospel reality. Our language and culture learning is so vitally important if we are called to be agents of good news. Because scripturally, in the gospels, there are no context-neutral expressions of good news. Every time Jesus was engaged in teaching, speaking, or in some other good newsing activity, there was a specific context that Jesus understood. Now, let me give you a couple of examples. For a man who was born blind, good news had something to do with recovering his sight. 
For a bereaved widow whose only son had died, good news had to do with her son being raised from the dead. For a woman with 12 years of bleeding and exclusion and shame, good news had to do with healing, with acceptance. For a curious and ashamed Zacchaeus, the good news had to do with a transformative forgiveness and an acceptance of the hospitality that Zacchaeus offered. So can you see the connection then between if we are to be agents of good news in the places that God sends us, we've got to be able to connect with the context. Back when I was doing um, early, early academic Bible study, we talked a lot about the importance of learning to exegete the text. That is, to really dig into the text so that we could understand what the, script, what the setting was in the Scripture so that we could understand it. I also learned through my years of, of international service that, yes, we have to be able to exegete the text, but we have to simultaneously exegete the context in which we're ministering. And it's only when we bring those two circles together and see the overlap of text and context that we can begin to discover good news in that particular setting. Raymond Fung, who was the chair of evangelism for the World Council of Churches back in the 1980s, and I remember reading an article which he said, good news is not good news unless it is good news. Oh, duh. But he went on to illustrate it by saying, a cup of cold water in Jesus' name is not good news to a person who is drowning. It can only be good news if the person is thirsty. And so for all of us in our cross-cultural ministries, our task is to be just amazingly alert to the needs, to the realities around us so that God's Spirit can can quicken our sensitivity and help us recognize ways that the good news that we know connects meaningfully with the people that God has sent us to so that it can indeed be good news. So, big question, how do you get there? Especially if you're involved in short terms. And I wonder, from, from those of you who've done a good bit of short-term work, what, what have you found that helps you to ramp up your language and culture sensitivity? What's, what's been your experience? What's, what's been especially helpful for you? Yes? A national on the ground who knows the language and culture who Okay, a national in the culture who will take you out to the woodshed and correct you. Yes. What a gift, isn't it? Yes. What what else have you found helpful? I spend a lot of time asking questions to, to nationals and missionaries that I'm working with about the culture and learn all I can about the culture. And before I go into a seminar, I sit down with my interpreter beforehand to go through it. And Excellent. A lot of time asking questions of nationals and missionaries in advance, and then before doing a presentation, spend time with your interpreter, really working through the details. Jen? Just the ability to laugh at yourself. Think of the nationals to be able to feel like Yes, ability to laugh at yourself. We'll say a little more about that in a minute. That's just very, very important. Very important. Did somebody else had a had a hand up? Well, and and all of these are are just so so uh, very very important. 
one of the things that you already have have pointed to is that this process is about more than just skills and tools. It has to begin with a deep humility, a genuine humility, and a deep respect for the people with whom you're working. One of the veteran missionaries that who helped mentor me in Ethiopia, we were walking one day down in the Blue Nile um, Valley, and uh, we had been we had met some uh, Oromo people, uh, or they were Gumus people who were walking through the area there. And my friend Ray was laughing. He said, "Yeah, these people are so ignorant. They're illiterate in four languages." <laughs> And, um, and he had a deep respect for them. And for all of us, you've, you've, you've heard the, the horror stories of Americans who went on short-term or even long-term trips who went with such an arrogant, presumptuous spirit that their, their whole way of being and their way of interacting was deeply offensive and so we learn, we learn to, to be very humble and respectful, to see ourselves as learners. It doesn't matter if, if you have three graduate degrees and years of experience and genuine expertise in an area that you're coming to share. Your primary identity needs to be that of a learner. Um, Somewhere along the line, I was passing through England and saw in a shop a little Pooh Bear that was just you know about this tall, and it had a white placard, white square placard on its chest, with a letter, a block red letter L. Have, have you ever been in the UK or a British Commonwealth area and seen a vehicle with a white block with a large letter L on it. Do you, do you know what that is? It's, it is their equivalent of student driver. This vehicle is under the control of a learner. Well, I got that Pooh Bear, and I have it on my desk as a reminder that wherever I am, my core identity needs to be that of a learner. I think there is an important spiritual discipline for all of us that is the foundation of language and culture sensitivity, and that's the spiritual discipline of paying attention, of just being aware, just being aware of, of what's going on around you, of who's around you, of what's going on in their lives. Um, just curious, did, without looking, do you, do you know... What color shoes the person next to you is wearing? Do you know what color shoes you're wearing? <laughs> Paying attention is just, is just a really important thing. So even if you don't have a next mission trip on the horizon already scheduled, one of the most important things you can do toward developing cultural and language sensitivity is to practice paying attention right now. Instead of being purpose-driven, which most of us Americans are really good about, try paying attention. Several years ago, I had, had just begun teaching in a, a seminary, and the day I was able to move into my office, I was scurrying up and down the hall, carrying boxes of books from my car, and back and forth, back and forth. Finally, one of the students, one of the young women, said, Michael, you're missing all the people. And she was right. She was right. I was so focused on getting that task of unloading my car, getting my books and stuff into my office that I was totally missing the people. And that's, that stung. It stung. And, of course, I laughed, but laughed out of embarrassment and realized, wow, that's exactly right. 
I was missing all the people. Don't be lost in thought. Somewhere along the line, I began to to do uh, some meditation and centering prayer. And have some of you done some of that? And one of the foundational pieces of that is just sitting before the Lord, of being. We are human beings, not human doings. But most of us, and I'm, I'm the worst, are hardwired for doing, hardwired for activity. And so one of the most valuable exercises for any of you who have done that kind of centering prayer is when you sit before you begin thinking and audib- or audibly praying is to just notice your breath. Notice your breathing. Simply that. Because your breath is with you every minute of the day. And you, as you cultivate awareness of your breath, you are cultivating awareness of being. And that in the beginning, God breathed the breath of life into all of us. And so it's a way of being aware all the time of just being. And cultivating that helps us avoid the, I would, I would almost call it the sin of being lost in thought. Because every moment that we are lost in thought is a moment not fully lived. Thoreau was the one who said, only that day dawns for which we are awake. And if we're not awake every moment in our international experiences, we cannot be present to the people God is sending us to. We cannot be present to God's Spirit guiding our interaction in those settings. So learning, as I mentioned a minute ago, really is, is a way of, of being. And we need to learn in a very childlike way. You know, have, you, have you been around little um, six to 18-month-old kids lately? Those dudes are learning machines. They are just observing and touching and tasting and listening and mimicking all the time. They're, they're just amazing. And for us in our cross-cultural experience, and let me say to you, by the way, if some of you are interested in these slides, see me afterwards and give me an email address. I'll be glad to send, send this to you. Um, but one of the important things about children is, is that they are curious. They're always looking. They're, they're asking. For, for us in our cross-cultural experiences, asking why is not always the most constructive thing. I, I can remember during some of my language learning experiences in language classes, we had some members of our class, including me occasionally, who would want to know, well, why do you say it that way? Well, why would we ask why do you say it that way? Why? Maybe to get a better understanding, but what is the foundation of it? Well, because we think they're doing it wrong, we're doing it right, and we don't know why they do it that way. Right. Yeah, I think so. There is there is a um, there is such a tendency to be um, ethnocentric and linguocentric, I don't know if that's even a word, but to assume that our way of understanding and articulating reality is normative for the human race and that any deviation from that has to be wrong. Why would you say it that way? So why is not nearly as important as as what? And to have the kind of curiosity I've heard hinted at in some of the comments you've made the kind of curiosity and eagerness to learn, which says either in words or in attitude, tell me more. Tell me more. I want to hear more. I want to, I want to be able to understand better. I want to better get a glimpse from the inside of, 
how that may be. I had been living in the um, village of Chandibaru, about 4,000 feet up on the slopes of Mount Merapi in Indonesia for several years, a couple of years, when I realized that I needed to have a Javanese name because I was living there and had, was connecting with the people. So one night when we were sitting drinking tea and the guys were rolling and smoking their clove cigarettes, um, I wasn't, didn't inhale. Um, um, they, uh, I, I said, How, why, I would like to have a Javanese name. And so they talked among themselves for a while, and this is what they came up with, Siswo Buono. And uh, anytime a guy's nickname is Sis, you know, it's kind of kind of odd. But, um, but they explained the reason for that selection. The word Siswo means a student or a learner, and Buono means from around the world, from, from another side of the world. And it was, it was a real gift to me that they had picked up on the fact that I saw myself as a learner among them. It also didn't hurt that in the Javanese New Testament, which these guys didn't know, the word siswo is also the word for disciple which helped to connect in my mind again the reality that as disciples of Jesus, learner is our identity all the way along. Um, just a couple of practical things. When you're doing your mission trips, be sure that there is a structured time of reflection and sharing every day that each of you individually is invited maybe to journal for a few minutes first privately around the question of where, where did you see footprints of God today? Where did you see the Spirit of God? You know, I, as a rookie missionary, you know, I bought that business that we're going to take God to these people. Hey, folks, God got there before us. It doesn't matter when you got there, but God got there before you. So look for the ways that God's spirit is at work in the lives of the people because those are your points of connection. And so build those times of structured reflection so that together your whole day is permeated with that sense of discovery and expectancy to see the beautiful things that are going to unfold. So language learning itself, I think of as a really tangible, practical way of living out a life of, of daily sacrifice because language learning really is very, very hard work. Um, the language learning methodology that, that was so amazing, amazingly helpful for me was from the LAMP course. Some of you are familiar with LAMP? Language Acquisition Made Practical. And uh, this Tom and Betty Sue Brewster were the authors of that and were, were the ones who taught a group of us from CMF a bunch of years ago. A basic premise of this whole program is that we are learners, not students. Because if you are a student, who's in charge of your learning? The teacher. Of course. Now, that's not always the case. But, but the, the general idea is that the, the teacher is in charge, but the reality for all of us when we want to be learners is that we are taking responsibility for our learning, that we are actively engaged. We're taking the initiative in that whole process. Another basic premise is that we learn like a child. We use our ears first. Think of it. By the time you were four years old, all of you were probably fluent in your first language. You may not have been able to write in your first language, but you were fluent. You couldn't grammatically analyze all of your language. But what is grammar anyway? Grammar is just a way of describing the language. 
but you used your ear gate more than your eye gate. You did a lot of mimicking. Um, I mean, you think about these little babies, the the, the 12-month-old, 14-month-old babies, Sometimes you, you sit around, you listen to those little critters, and they're just jabbering away. And they may, you may not be able to make out the words, but you can, re, you can pick up intonation patterns as they're jabbering along because they're mimicking, which is our natural language learning. I think of, I think of this LAMP approach as kind of the Lamaze method of, uh, of language learning. And then just do a lot of practice. There is uh, the LAMP approach has a basic four-step language learning cycle that any of us can use, even if you are on a three-day mission trip, which I hope you don't have to endure. Um, But if you're on three days or three weeks or three months, you can devote a small amount of time every day to using this language learning cycle, and it will be very helpful to you, and you'll make amazing progress, in part because you're in an immersion setting. You're surrounded by people who speak the language and whose world is reflected by that that language. And an important beginning point is to find a local native speaker to be your language helper, not your teacher. Because if you designate them to be your teacher, they're going to take over and direct the learning process. But in this situation, you need to be in charge because you're the only one who can define what you need in these steps. The four-step language learning cycle is, number one, get what you need for that day. What is it you need to be able to communicate? And then number two, you practice what you got. Third is use what you practiced. And then fourth is evaluate and get ready for the next cycle. So here's the example. Arrived in Indonesia, did um, a five-month language course in Bahasa, Indonesia, which is the national language but then moved to central Java and used Bahasa Indonesia then as the bridge language to begin studying Javanese, which is the heart language of, thirty at that time, 35 million people in that central part of Java. So day one, I found a language helper, a guy who was a recently retired government worker, Javanese guy. I had asked around, and people said, yeah, Pat Joyo speaks good Javanese. So... Day one, Pat Joyo helped put together a very simple text. It wasn't baby talk, and I could not have grammatically analyzed it, but the basic part of that was for me to be able to introduce myself and tell people what I was up to and then get out of the social situation. So we put together a text, and I kept uh, repeating, mimicking, his pronunciation of the text until I got it fluent enough that, brief as it was, he said, that's pretty good, that's pretty smooth. And he recorded it for me with his voice on an endless loop tape. And this was way back in the technological age where they would have little micro cassettes and stuff. Um, But endless loop, and so I kept... And after Pajoyo left, I mimicked and practiced that again and again and again. And then the program requires you get out on the streets and say your little spiel to at least 15 native speakers. So here I go, day one. Hello, my name is Michael. I'm from America. I'm learning to speak Javanese. That's all I can say. Goodbye. <laughs> That's exactly the response you get. And so, but if you have done your piece smoothly enough, people will start jabbering away and asking questions. You just rerun your last line. That's all I can say. Goodbye. <laughs> but then the next day, but you build on that, and the next day your text might be Hello, my name's Michael. I'm from America. I just moved to Boyolali yesterday, 
I'm trying to learn to speak Javanese. Please correct me if I make a mistake. That's all I can say. Goodbye. <laughs> and because you go back to the same neighborhoods every day, pretty soon you're finding that people are taking you on as a project. And they're really proud of your progress. Plus, not to speak that there are 35 or 40 snotty-nosed little children who are tagging along, who memorize your spiel after you say it the first time. And then when you get to your second station, they're saying, Hello, my name is my... <laughs> Shut up! <laughs> so, thus, thus, the importance of being able to laugh at yourself because you can be sure others will laugh at you. So just very, it can really be a ball of fun. And again, this does reinforce the importance of humility. And um, so all of this, as you can see, involves learning in relationships. You, d you don't have language apart from relationships. Language is irrelevant apart from relationships. Most of the deep transformation that has occurred in my life has been in relationships with people who saw me, who loved me, who accepted me, who challenged me, and who facilitated growth. And it's this learning in relationship that provides for mutual learning, shared learning, I've often said that of my, all my years I've spent in international ministry, the most important things God did were transforming me, shaping my understanding, shaping how I, how I know God, how I prepare to serve. Incarnational really is the ideal. And it is an ideal because none of us, even if we lived an entire lifetime as adults, in a new culture, we would never be fully incarnated into that setting. But it's, in our, it's our ideal, our goal to move as close as we can to being insiders in those settings. Through most of our, the conversation this morning, I think... Um, Probably most of us have been thinking about our interactions with individuals or villages or communities. Many of you as healthcare professionals, either already in practice or in, in training, are thinking about the ways that, that God can use you to be agents of healing and transformation and hope in the lives of, of, of the wonderful people. And we tend to see that. Plus, our American culture biases us toward a more individualistic way of thinking of ourselves and our own spiritual journey, as well as the ministry that we engage in in other parts of the world. But I want to challenge you to see a little more deeply, to use your language and culture sensitivity to begin to recognize systemic causes of poverty and disease that you may be involved in treating. You're familiar with this, aren't you? This illustration. What do you see there? What do you see? Two, see two women. All of you see two women there? Okay, so you're familiar with this. And um, there, there are lots of illustrations of this. And the point of which is to, to cultivate, cultivate the ability to see more deeply, to see causal realities. Some of you may be far enough back that you can't see, um, uh, can't see more deeply. That's interesting to think about. You may be too far away to see more deeply. So, um, but you know, from a distance, it looks like an old man here and an old woman there. But you get closer, and there's a guy sitting here playing a guitar, and a woman sitting here with something on her head, and uh, that's a curtain blowing in the breeze from an arched doorway, and all that. So the idea is the challenge to see more, to see more deeply. Let me share a parable that, that we use often in Bread for the World, where I work. There was a village, 
and some of you will recognize it. There was a village alongside a river. One day, one of the villagers was there washing clothes, and she looked, and there was a baby floating down the river. And she got out into the water, grabbed the baby, and just totally puzzled. Well, the next day and the next day and the next day, babies were found floating down the river. And the village was just stunned, and they got together, and they said, what are we going to do with this? And so they developed special skills. We had some people there who were baby spotters. We had people who became expert in baby water rescue, some in baby resuscitation, adoption programs that were developed. Finally, one day along the way, somebody said, why don't we go upstream and find out why these babies are getting in the water in the first place? And so the challenge for us in our ministries is to ask the question, why is there such poverty? Why why is there such disease that we're dealing with? And ask the question, is it enough for us to see and respond to the distresses of individuals when we can also help the multitudes? And and I have to stress, it's not about an either-or situation at all. I think it's in Matthew 25 that Jesus is talking about sort of a judgment situation. And um, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. And that leads on to the message that every time you did something to one of the least of these, you were doing it unto me. And so when we see Jesus with Beruli ulcer, in Sudan or Côte d'Ivoire. Love calls us to care and treat and seek healing. But love also calls us to help try to find what's causing Beruli ulcer and to eliminate that cause. And that same principle applies all across the spectrum of human brokenness and pain. Love calls us to care and to feed a person who is hungry. But if we come down the road and again and again and again every day, that person is there and is persistently hungry, then that same love calls us to ask, what's the cause there? How can we be agents of change there? Um, we're going to have to, to zip through this. That, but biblically, the word that for this second level of seeing is justice. We don't talk as much about justice in most of our churches. But I can assure you that the theme of justice, which dominates the law and the prophets, absolutely saturated and shaped the life and the ministry of Jesus. The prophecy from Isaiah 42, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. In America, most of the time when we talk about justice, we're talking about locking up the bad people and giving them what they deserve. But the biblical notion of justice is far different. The biblical notion is recognizing that every person is a beloved child of God. And the heart of God longs to see that every one of them is treated with fairness, with grace, with dignity, so that every one of them has the opportunity to thrive. And against that backdrop, we have to ask the question in a In our North American setting, where is the justice in children in low-income families and low-income communities going to schools that are underfunded, under-equipped, and virtually guarantee that they cannot thrive? Where is the justice in that? And that's just one example. Um, 
I love this challenge from Amos, and this is from the message. I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. Brazilian Archbishop Don Hel Camara said, When I feed hungry people, they call me a saint. When I ask why people are hungry, they call me a communist. And the point is that when we begin to see with eyes that see injustice, then we cause trouble. Because all of us, every one of us, has a vested interest in the privilege that we have and in most cases, we are blind to the reality that the circumstances that pro- protect our privilege are also blocking privilege for others. Wow, we're just about out of time. So practically speaking, what do you watch for? If you're learning in your cross-cultural setting to see through deeper, at another deeper level, You watch for circumstances that perpetuate disease, pain, hunger, and poverty. And I wonder, do any of you quickly have an example from one of your experiences outside the U.S. or inside the U.S. where you recognized a, a justice, a structural, a systemic issue that you needed to address out of the love of Christ? Any examples? Let me share. What, oh, yes. Somebody have a hand? Yes. I, have, I haven't addressed it, but um, I serve in a, a uh, inner city clinic in northeast Philadelphia, Puerto Rico. And uh, I spend some time reading the history and speak politics. Basically, what the U.S. did is use these colonized Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What I'm dealing with now is three or four generations later, people who don't have an infrastructure in their lives. Okay, three or four generations later, the consequences of, of an injustice that robbed local businesses of their ability to thrive. Another very simple example I can share briefly, I have good friends who are actually Colombian-born, a physician and a public health expert, who work in um, Bolivia. And as they worked in their community health development, they began to recognize that sexual abuse of children was epidemic. A little research led them to recognize that in Bolivia, even though Bolivia had, Bolivia's government had signed some international treaties decrying sexual abuse of children, there was no law on the books in Bolivia making it a criminal offense to sexually abuse a child. And, in addition, the Constitution did not give citizenship rights to a child until age 15 or 16. And so, in order to bring the love of Christ in a healing, redemptive, restorative way, they had to lobby the government of Bolivia to rewrite the Constitution, to give children citizenship rights at birth, and to legally make it a crime to sexually abuse a child. And so they established Bolivia's first center for child sexual abuse. They wound up being the instructors for the whole legislative and law enforcement leadership systems of Bolivia on this issue. So, I mean, there are just some powerful examples when we learn to see. I want to mention, um, at Bread for the World, we have a resource for your short-term or long-term trips that will help you um, to learn to see with these eyes that see 
in addition to the immediate needs before you, those broader systemic issues. And I'm at uh, 2601 upstairs, and I have probably 30 or 40 copies with me. So if you want one, uh, just come on up and, and see me. Other resources for cultural sensitivity. And we are out of time. Um, if you want to talk some more, I'll be around here for a while and up at 2601 later. Thanks so much. May God bless you, give you eyes and ears and hearts that are wide open to experience the wonder of service in God's world.